Listening to your rights at work, Chris Garlock and Ed Smith here with you as always every Thursday. You can tune in here, right here on WPFW, and find out all about your rights at work the ones you have, the ones you don't have, the ones you wish you had. Ed, what is the number that folks would call in to talk to us? Yes, thank you, Chris. Welcome, everybody. Please call up us at 202 588. 0893. That's 202-588-0893. We'd love to take your calls. Hey, by the way, did you know that Your Rights at Work is a proud founding member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network with nearly 150 labor radio and podcast shows just like this one. You can check them out at laborradionetwork.org. That's laborradionetwork.org how about that chris nicely done brother nicely done yeah yeah don't don't, don't give up the gay day job right <laughs> give me give me a little rope and I'll, and I'll take care of it hey listen folks we got a great show uh lined up for you we're going to have james crosby from 1199 sciu united healthcare workers he's going to tell us about how low-wage workers who prop up the nursing home industry but they're quitting in droves. And then we're going to be joined a little bit later on by Erica Smiley and Sarita Gupta. They've got a brand new book coming out, The Future We Need, Organizing for a Better Democracy in the 21st Century. And uh, we're going to have music at the half. Uh, just a hint here. It was a big hit back uh, on this date in 1981. If you think you know what it is, you can give us a call, let you know, uh, let us know what you think it is. Back in 1981, big hit. First, I got a, got a, boy, I got a bunch of uh, labor news headlines for you. First of all, some good news. I always like to leak with the good news, Ed Smith. Kroger workers uh, who uh, work for King Supers. We don't have any King Supers around here. Too bad. Mm -hmm. uh, Supers, that's S-O-O-P-E-R-S, King Supers. Uh, 8,000 workers have been out uh, on strike across Colorado. Uh, they have ended their strike. And they not only uh, ended their strike, they got apparently uh, an industry-leading contract uh, after that 10-day strike. So congratulations to the, the workers at King Supers. Yeah, absolutely, man. Nice to see another win in the strike arena and only 10 days. Congratulations out there in Colorado. Well done. Bingo bell to them. And Colorado has a long and ancient history of big strikes uh, back in the mining industries back in the uh, early, uh, early, early 20th century. So good to see him uh, continue to live up to that strength. Absolutely. Good job uh, to the folks there. That's a UFCW local seven, local seven. Uh, Boulder, Parker, and Denver area. Now, I got not one, not two, but three transit uh, updates. So let's see, uh, in sort of random order here, um, bus drivers have gone on strike in a rural Mississippi school district. Ed, you'll be interested about this one. Uh, what what they, they're annoyed about is that, uh, you know, as you probably heard, and I, I was just taking the Metro today, and uh, all the metro stations have big signs. They're looking to recruit drivers. 
uh, for Metro, they're having a real trouble, um, you know, here and across the country getting uh, drivers for, you know, buses, trains, stuff like that. So what they uh, what they were doing is offering twenty five dollars an hour to folks to to come drive. The problem is uh, the people that are already driving are getting uh, wait for it twelve to fifteen dollars. <laughs> mm-hmm. Not not too happy uh, about that. So they've gone out on strike. Uh, not not any uh, against you know the higher pay. They're just like, well, we should get that too, uh, which right. makes sense to me. Uh, also, the CTA that's the Chicago Transit Authority. Uh, has reached a tentative agreement with Amalgamated Transit Unions Locals 241 and 308. Uh, that covers 8,500 uh, workers, and that's got a, uh, a backdate, uh, uh, that contract. That's a four-year agreement, uh, and they'll be backdated to December of 19. And then I got one more. This is out um, in uh, Marin and Sonoma County. That's in California. Uh, the bus up operators union there uh, voted to authorize a strike this weekend uh, over unresolved contract negotiations. Ed, you might know a little bit about that unresolved contract issues. Yeah. I want to say more than that. I know you were out last week dealing with some. I thought you said meditation, but I guess it was mediation, right? Uh, yeah, I guess you could use a little meditation during. That's <laughs> a um, that's a, a in the know joke. <sighs> Hey, listen, by the way, you talked about that Mississippi uh, yeah. strike. Uh, by the way, I don't know if you saw this, but the county's name, Jefferson Davis. No, I missed that. Oh, my God. Are you kidding? A little south, it's a little southeast of Jackson, Mississippi. By the way, I, I tried to organize in Jackson, Mississippi about 20 years ago. How'd that work out for you? EMT workers. We actually had a bunch of them signed up. About half the company signed up, and I went down there, talked with one of the leaders, and like, well, why why aren't we getting more? And he's like, I don't know. And I said, well, do you have any black people that work as EMTs? And he's like, yeah. I said, have you reached out to them? He's like, I didn't even think of that. (laughs) (laughs) We ultimately were not not successful there. But uh, one other really quick story is when we were driving around the various Dunkin' Donuts and different places to meet EMT workers, uh, one uh, feisty uh, middle-aged uh, black woman EMT, along with her big, strong male uh, co-worker, came and started yelling and screaming at me about why why the union hasn't reached out to uh, the black workers. <laughs> and uh, we, we ultimately got a bunch of them, but we did not get to an election in that. But uh, tough, tough area to organize, Jackson, Mississippi. And uh, unbelievably, they still have a county named Jefferson Davis. Oh. Oh, man, I'm just sort of flabbergasted. I can't say as I'm surprised, uh, but uh, interesting uh, about that. So those are a bunch of transit-related stories. Uh, and I also want to mention, I got a call from uh, Mike Kavanaugh. Uh, used to be with the National AFL-CIO. You know, he supposedly retired a couple of years ago, but like a lot of labor folks, he's uh, still involved in a whole lot of stuff. He called me this morning. A week from today is National Transit Equity Day. And there's going to be actions around the country, including here in D.C. They're finalizing the details. So we will be covering that on the show next week. And folks can keep an eye, uh, as always, at dclabor.org or at D.C. Labor on uh, Twitter and Facebook. As we have more details, we'll be putting that out. Uh, But there are definitely, uh, you know, things planned around uh, Transit Equity Day. And, And I was happy to have, you know, a bunch of stories showing you know, why we need something like 
transit equity day. Like, yeah. you know, it's just very similar, very similar to our safe staffing uh, informational picket a couple of weeks ago. And, and pardon the pun, but DCNA is on board. Oh, nicely done, Ed Smith. Nicely done. Hey, give folks that number one more time uh, so they know how they can sure. reach the show. Sure. Everybody, please give us a call. We love to hear your uh, questions and comments. We like to get into debates with you even. 202-588-0893. 202-588-0893. Excellent. Uh, we'll be going to James Crosby in just a second, but I got a couple of more quick uh, labor news updates. Uh, remember, we did a lot of coverage of the union vote in Alabama last year. Uh, that is set for a revote due to the boss doing a whole lot of bad stuff. And uh, according to a report that I've seen, the union is feeling uh, optimistic. Um, so we'll we'll see. It's the same union, the retail, wholesale, and department store union. Interestingly, Ed Smith. There really hasn't been the sort of major wall-to-wall national attention that there was last time. And I'm not sure, I mean, you know, we've got a potential you know, war in Ukraine. We've got uh, you know, the Supreme Court, uh, you know, vacancy opening up. So there may be other things that are pushing that off. But I just haven't seen the sort of big hey, attention. If, do you know if this is a, uh, again, for the, the last one was on-site. Do you know if it's an on-site one again or, or a combination mail on-site? <clears throat> you know, that's a good Excuse me. A good question, Ed, and I'm not sure, but I know that the National Liberal Relations Board is all over this, uh, you know, because they're the ones who ordered the revote. So, Mike, I mean, remember the big issue. In fact, the main reason they did the rerun was because one of the things that Amazon did was to get uh, a mailbox put inside the facility. And, you know, you as a union guy, you know, it's pretty obvious that that that's kind of coercive, right? Yeah, I mean, on the face of it, it wouldn't be, but you've got an employer looking at everybody who votes, um, and and even though you don't know which way they vote, they still can identify that you are indeed voting. So that's a, it's definitely a, a, a little bit coercive, and and obviously the NR, NLRB found that, and that's why there's a rerun. Right. So we'll be we'll be tracking that uh, as it goes. I think they have a couple of weeks. Uh, to to vote. All right, that's going to do it for our labor news headlines. Lots of stuff going on around the country. Now, <clears throat> I came across this terrific piece. Rebecca Rebecca Tan did a wonderful piece, uh, January twenty second in the Washington Post. Headline: Low wage workers prop up the nursing home industry. They're quitting in droves. And you know, and we've been talking about this on the show for a while now. The so called Great Resignation. Uh, you know, I think it's something like, what, three, four million people that are basically just sort of it, it's interesting. The latest I saw was that not so much that people are quitting <clears throat> as they're quitting one job to take another job. Right. They're, they're sort of moving and, and they, you know, they have options now. People have options and, and they're taking them. But this is uh, great. And uh, it's a picture of uh, Latoya Francis with this story. <clears throat> and she's standing there uh, in this great photo. Shout out to the photographer, Amanda Andrade Rose. She's standing there kind of, she looks like she, she's got to be at the end of her shift. She looks kind of tired, but behind her is this sign, obviously, at the, uh, the Bridgepoint Healthcare Facility where she works. It says to all of our healthcare workers, thank you, thank you mm-hmm. from Bridgepoint. And, I, you know, the point is that people are sort of, you know, tired of getting the pats on the back and then not getting the recognition. So I really wanted to find out more about this. Latoya Francis 
uh, is a member of the union uh, that uh, our next guest uh, belongs to. He's the administrative organizer for 1199 SEIU United Healthcare Workers East, the Maryland, D.C. division, and that is Mr. James Crosby. Mr. Crosby, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So uh, tell us, tell us about Latoya and 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 what's going on. She she she's that this close to quitting, right? I, I don't uh, particularly know Latoya personally. Uh, I think that's another organizer that she works for. Uh-huh. But her story is still similar to to the to the uh, nursing home industry anyway. I mean, you come in there, you're short staffed. You don't have equipment, and then you also have to face COVID inside the facility. And then uh, they don't want to pay you a decent wage for putting yourself in danger, mm-hmm. which, which has always been the case. But what COVID did, it actually exposed the industry for what it is. And let's, and let's be clear about the industry. The industry is... The most the workers are mostly female, and we know the history of female workers in America, meaning that they, they are not paid, they're not respected, and right now, the, the, the bulk of the people who work in their nursing homes are women, but they are women of color. They're either you know black, African American, Latino, or or from the continent of Africa in those particular places, and you're saying. That means, you know, uh, uh, they don't want to pay money for this particular work. And, and James, let me just j- j- jump in here because because mm-hmm. one of the interesting things about the story, so it's a great beginning of the story about Latoya, mm-hmm. one of your members. It says in the eight years she's worked in nursing homes, Latoya Francis, 34, has been yelled at, kicked at, and had feces thrown at her mm-hmm. for a little more than a minimum wage. She endured it because she loved being a certified nursing assistant, but she's not sure she can hold out much longer. Now, I mean, all the stuff that you just talked about, James, are working for minimum wage, not being respected, but being kicked at and having feces thrown at you. I mean, my God. If you really know the history of nursing homes, um, years ago, those particular type of patients were not admitted to nursing homes. Now we have patients who have dementia. We have patients who may have substance abuse issues. And the problem is people are not trained to actually deal with this particular type of patient. So these particular things, I remember probably about 10 years ago, we had a a bill passed, you know, maybe workplace violence in nursing homes and hospitals to protect workers. A lot of times the worker really can't defend themselves or they may get in trouble for patient abuse. So that's even even worse. You know, you got somebody that's actually attacking you and you really can't defend yourself, but you may may lose your license. And once you lose your license, you know, through the board of nursing, then you're labeled and you may not be able to, to get a job. And that's the bad thing about it. Not only that, you'll say, as I said before, the lack of good good wages. Right now, young people are not coming in this uh, in this profession. We know that nursing homes, unless you have some money and you and you can go to a, well, as they call them retirement homes, so to speak. You know, most of these nursing homes you know, are short staff, and there are no, basically a lot of them 
are no more than warehouses. You know what I'm saying? Because you know they don't have any place to go right, because right. of low money. You know, you have some very good nursing homes that actually you know they do what they need to do, but you also have some bad ones, and that's the bad thing about. It. And they don't want to pay. Let's be real clear about this. Uh, the nursing home association they get together, they they you know they fix wages because they don't want people to leave their particular facility and go someplace else. But that's happening right now. Because even in the Washington, D.C. area, uh, we have people in facility where people are now making $16, $17, which still is not enough for that type of work that they do. Uh, workers, know, James, go ahead. James, this is Ed Smith, and uh, uh, I work for D.C. Nurses Association, so we represent mm -hmm. nurses and other healthcare professionals. and. I've always had my eye out on Bridgepoint and what's going on over there, but you know we know it's not just Bridgepoint. It's 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 a problem all over the country, and uh, as you mentioned, this was going on pre-pandemic because these are for-profit companies. Uh, I know that there's some uh, before before I ask my question. I also want to remind uh, callers to please give us a call. You know, here's your opportunity to talk to. James, uh, who's got a lot of experience in uh, dealing with these issues. And if you're a healthcare worker and you're concerned about the, these things, if you work at Bridgepoint, uh, give us a call. If Even if you don't work at, in the healthcare industry, again, 202-588-0893. My question, James, is I also know that there's some language in the D.C. Um, laws that there's <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> supposed to be some staffing requirements uh, in, in nursing homes. And I was wondering... Uh, what's the ability to enforce that? Um, and in, in my opinion, it, it, there's just no question that you have to add staff. And we talk about from nurses from RN perspective that you have to add RNs, but along with that, you have to have the proper ancillary staff so mm -hmm. that the RN can do what she or he is, uh, uh, you know, licensed to do. And then also give, uh, work to other licensed professionals that can do what they're doing, and then also make sure you've got someone who can answer the phones. Uh, certified nursing assistants, LPNs, RNs shouldn't be in the in the in the um, place of answering phones. So I guess my question is twofold: one, enforcement of these staffing uh, regulate or, or laws in DC regarding nursing homes, and two, uh, what's your thoughts about the overall staffing as it relates to ancillary care, RN care, LPN, etc. Okay, uh, good question. Uh, the ratio for uh, GNAs is 15 to 1. Is that in force right now? It's not because there's a great shortage of that, and people can't do that, and the patients definitely have to have some type of care. The enforcement is basically we, have, we can go to arbitration. We do those particular things. But the point is, you're saying, going to those particular entities, you know, through the federal government is a it's a long process, you know, and guess what? <laughs> Management knows that, you know, saying? they know that, you know, saying? so the, the best thing to do is each member who belong to a, to a union should be strong in those particular things so they can enforce the rules, you know, saying they can go to management without any type of repository and say, this is what the rule is, and then if they get any, any feedback, we can organize against that. See, the See, nursing homes can't work or cannot run without the health care worker. And I keep on telling health care workers they have the power. 
Yes. You actually have the power. You have the power in numbers and the reliability of needing you. And you also have the power through the CBA, you know, if you have one in your facilities. Now, shortage, as we say, has always been a problem. Low pay has always been a problem because this is, is a, a woman ran industry. I mean, you got your know, fruit guys, but it's basically women. Because I remember when I first started, you know, I, I did, I took out service. I worked at this place called Lafayette, which is no longer uh, in service. And it was so bad because they didn't have enough staff. And then, you know, you didn't have supplies. This is not new. And what exposed America and the healthcare system is, is are the inequities. You know, say, as I said, one nursing home that's, you know, functioning and have the money can actually provide that care and possibly wages for those particular people. I'm sorry to interrupt, but one of the things that I was noticing in this story, I just wanted to to get your reaction, was the uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics says the nursing home industry has lost more than 420,000 jobs. That's just since the start of the pandemic, right? Mm -hmm. And according to this story, that brings the workforce basically sets it back 15 years. But you're saying, if, if I understand what you're saying, you know, it's less workers more more patients and tougher patients. Is that what I'm hearing? Uh, which is true. As I was saying a long time ago, you didn't have dementia patients in, in nursing homes. They went to mm. a, a whole different type of facility. As we know, uh, they closed most of the places like Crownsville and, and places like that where patients go, actually went. And the, one of the hardest things, families are no longer willing to keep that, ty- uh, that particular type of person inside their homes. So yeah, you're saying more patients are coming in. And then younger patients, gunshot patients, things of that nature, you said, are actually also coming in nursing home. And without the training and the on the staff, yes, people are, are leaving. You know, hey, you know, they can go down to Amazon and or targets and work and you know and get benefits and whatever. But and, the, and, and not get not get feces thrown at them. Well, I hope I hope I, 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 I haven't seen that. You know, when I when I Google Amazon, I, I, I haven't seen that. They say but, it's a feces it's a feces job, but you know. But but here's the thing: whenever human beings work in a human connected job, all those particular type of things may come along in that particular uh-huh, job, uh-huh. and we have to take our hands off, you know what I mean, and, and clap simply for the mere fact that's a hard job to do. You're saying it's a thankless job, and, and then you're not paid for it. Uh, you know, basically healthcare workers, I don't care if you're the housekeeper, I don't care if you're in dietary, need to be appreciated. That's a hard job. And right now, you know, with COVID and, and things of that nature going around, that only push workers out because one of the biggest, another big problem in healthcare is child care. It's finding people to take care of your children. Right, right. You know So if you can't get a shift where you get me, because I have a daycare and we're actually empty because of COVID. You can't have any kids in here like that. So without affordable health care, which is linked to employment, you're saying that's only going to drive it you know, further down. You know, 
you're definitely going to have to have safe and reliable health care. So, you, you know. It just goes to show you. Um, by the way, my sister, Cindy, my oldest mm-hmm. sister, she's an LPN. And I remember uh, when she, she'd been an LPN for a, a long time. I won't, I won't date her. Um, mm-hmm. But um, I remember she would come home with stories and feces that was going on 30 years ago. Uh, uh, all sorts of people throwing up on you, people pooping on you, you know, just that people who are just, you know, they get uncontrolled. Uh, and it's a very tough environment. My sister, by the way, is about five foot tall and maybe a hundred pounds, but uh, pretty tough, pretty tough cookie. Uh, you know, it just, it just shows what we've become as a society that we care more about, and again, I think we should have police forces. I think police should serve and protect. But we care more about um, buying uh, uh, Gestapo-like uh, equipment for police departments than we do in healthcare. And I remember a couple of years ago when they were talking about shutting down United Medical Center, several several uh, council members say, said, "You know, we don't want to be in the business of healthcare anymore." And that's their that's their approach. And my approach is: Are you kidding me? How, you're in the business of policing, you're in the business of schools, you're in the business of firefighting, but we can't be in the business of healthcare, and we can't have Medicare for all. These are things that really systematically make would make changes. It still wouldn't take away the greediness of the for-profit folks that run most of these uh, nursing homes, um, but it would make a hell of a difference, don't you think? Uh-oh. Uh, most definitely. But here's the thing. People don't really think about health care until they need health care. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, you want all this quality things for yourself and your family. You know, how many times you, you as an organizer you try to get people, that you try to get the community to back health care? <laughs> Come on now. Let's be truthful. You're saying health care is just like spare change. You're saying it's, you know, you, you only need it when you need it because <laughs> it's, it's heavy. You're saying it makes a lot of noise and you got to count it. It's, it, it it's, it's a lot simpler, right? To count dollars. And that's what, you know, that's what the industry is doing. They're counting dollars, you know, as opposed to people. It has always been there. And here's, a, here's another thing too that people need to talk about. And, and we just you know, hit it on it. It's really allows systemic racism inside the industry. Mm-hmm. Once again, you know, Latinos, women, whatever, these are traditionally with, with salaries for these particular uh, group of people have always been low because the thinking is they, you know, that a lot of places have, they should be lucky to have a job. Right. That is right. the thinking. You know saying? So how do we change that particular thinking? And this is a good time. This is healthcare's workers' time. Because we don't know, you know, down the road, you know, say what variant may hit us again. We don't know. And right now, you're saying people in the health care are tired of being pain cushions. You're saying uh, they can't, uh. they can no longer can continue to feel that particular pain. So you're saying we don't have a lot of answers because, as I said, that's a human Emotion, hands-on job. You know, saying, you know, sometimes you know, good wages under these conditions may not do a lot for people because what they're going through at this particular time. 
I truly believe you're saying there should be counseling, you know, for healthcare workers. And when things are thrown on them, this and that and the other, instead of trying to take in their license, you know, maybe it, there should be some type of mediation to help them through that particular process. All the training in the world, look, I, I am a Marine. All the training in the world will not prepare you for real life things. I mean, you, I mean, because your training is geared to a certain type of training. But I think the point, but I think the point, I think the point, brother, because well, point is is well put. What does that mean? You know, tell me, you know, would you trade places with that GNA seeing no. went, went through that? No. And how professional would you act? You I think it's that? a very I think it's a very, very tough job. And I think you had a colleague of yours, uh Yvonne was quoted in the post. Yeah. And it was an interesting quote. She said, it seems like the folks in charge are trying everything except what the frontline workers want. We know it actually retains workers. It's more pay, more leave, and safer working conditions. So, I mean, it, it, it doesn't sound like rocket science uh, in terms of what to do. But as usual, you know, the bosses, you know, they don't they don't want to do that, and especially, I think, profit. for profit. Exactly. You got, that's you got that profit. And that's the bottom line. Yeah, nursing homes are sold every day like people selling snowballs in the street. I mean, and they talk about reimbursement and things of that nature. But see, here's the real problem. Because younger people are not going in this profession. You know, they're not come, they're just not doing it. So the question is because the population is getting older, and that's basically what nursing homes are basically for, for the for the for the elderly, you know, elderly, right? Mm-hmm. But now, as I said, we have different types of patients out of nursing homes. So you know saying without the training, without the funding, I see the country, you know, as uh uh, what called said, go back 30, 40, 50 years. That's where we're going. You know what I'm saying? We're going back to the, to the era of Florence Nightingale, which he used to, you know I mean, had a lantern and, and went from person to person, you know I mean, trying to you know, offer aid. Because without, like I said, without the training, without the funding, because I, I dread, you know what I'm saying? I, I dread, because I, I go to a, a VA hospital, and even there, I mean, they need people. But, you know, for me, I, I'm looking how nursing homes were a long time ago, and they did used to hire nonviolent people out of uh, institutions. Mm-hmm. And it, it, we may have to go back and do that, you know what I'm saying? James, we're going to have to run. Unfortunately, we're out of time, but we really appreciate you know you giving us this frontline report. Keep up the great work, James Crosby. He's administrative organizer for a long-term care for 1199 SCI United Healthcare Workers East. That's the Maryland DC division. James, you hang in there, buddy. Okay, thank y'all. All right, Keep take care. All right, we are going to be coming back as promised with uh, Erica Smiley and Sarita Gupta. They've got a brand new book out. We're going to find out all about it. Uh, But first, uh, on actually not today, tomorrow, January 28th, 1981, this song was top of the charts.
out of bed and I stumble to the kitchen Pour myself a cup of ambition And yawn and stretch and try to come to life Jump in the shower and the blood starts pumping Out on the streets the traffic starts jumping And folks like me on the job from nine to five you're crazy if you let it in the dolly parton nine to five number one hit on january 28th 1981 it's pretty good walk-on music for our next guest uh, erica smiley is executive director of jobs with justice sarita gupta is director of the ford foundation's future of workers program erica and sarita so good to have you guys on thanks for joining us hey glad to be here chris so great to be with you thank you Oh, my gosh. Well, I think you caught some of that last segment. And, and of course, you know, the issues that Dolly's singing about, you know, that song uh, is, is just as relevant today as, as when she wrote it uh, yep. a, a few, those years back. Uh, you have a new book coming out, uh, The Future We Need, Organizing for a Better Democracy in the 21st Century. I guess my first thing would be, it'd be good if we had some democracy, right? Yeah, yeah, the, for starters. <laughs> right. But tell tell us about the book. Well, look, here's the thing. I mean, I think for many years, we've, uh, as a movement, focused on democracy in the context of political discussions, right? The vote, civic engagement, but haven't spent enough time thinking about how to engage the majority of people 
in the economic side of decision making. And uh, collective bargaining has clearly been a pathway towards that. And so the book really is about centering our fight for building organizing collective bargaining power as the fight to as a front line of the fight to expand democracy. And that it's not just about winning traditional forms of collective bargaining power, but actually expanding the practice to employment and economic relationships writ large based on uh, how we're or how the economy is organized today. So it's actually exciting. And Chris, I got to tell you, I'm so glad you started with that song. I wasn't sure what the music song was going to be. And I love Nine to Five and Dolly Parton for a lot of reasons that I won't go into. But one of the things that I, I really appreciated about it is that not only the movie, but, you know, of course, the original Nine to Five and, of course, Local 925 and kind of the sister organization that, that came out of that uh, fight is, uh, was one of the, you know, early examples of what it looks like to think outside the box, to have mm-hmm, both a traditional mm-hmm. pathway to bargaining, but also to have the sister organization that could uh, move leverage in other channels. So uh, in some ways, many of the case studies that we line, line up in the book are modern examples of what the, the women of 9 to 5 tried to do back then. Well, let's get Sarita in uh, on that uh, as well, because I'd love to hear about some of the stories. But uh, it's reminding me, actually, uh, we're showing with Babies and Banners tonight. It's a free screening, folks. Uh, I think we've got like 200 folks already signed up. Uh, at least Bryant is going to be um, doing a Q&A with uh, the producer of the film. But the reason I was thinking about it in connection with this conversation and what you're doing is that it's about women during the sit-down strikes uh, who took such a huge, huge role. Uh, you know, the men were sitting down in the factory. Uh, somebody needed to bring the food. Somebody needed to take care of the kids. Somebody needed to fight, frankly, with the police. You know, um, So I was sort of connecting that with, with these struggles as well. But Sarita, let me get you in as well. Yeah, no, it, I would just echo what Smiley said about how important um, this book is for this moment that we're in right now. And especially this moment when there's so much discussion about the great resignation and, you know, um, really um, what that all means. And, and, and women are at the forefront of leading some of the most pioneering efforts right now, which again, in the book, we really lift up, but I I would, that's what I want to, I want to talk a little bit about, because I think it's important for us to recognize that while some call this moment the great resignation, millions of workers feel that America quit on them a long time ago. Right. You know, for the last three decades, this we've experienced the great stagnation of employers not meeting the needs of workers today. And so this isn't just it's not a great quit that we're seeing. We're seeing a historic moment of refusal. Like Thank people, you. Thank you. That's what's happening, right? People aren't quitting right now to leave the labor force. They're quitting to take other jobs because right. they don't want to accept anything less than living wages and benefits and safe working conditions. And we know that millions of workers are leaving jobs right now um, and taking other ones because of ongoing health and safety concerns and because of COVID-related care responsibilities. So workers are fighting right now, but workers are in motion right now. And all these efforts just signal for us that workers are exercising collective power to demand better conditions for themselves and fellow workers. And that's what's so exciting about this moment and to see the role of diverse workers in motion in particular going, you know, just hearkening back to starting with nine to five women workers in particular. I want to bring uh, Ed in on this, and, and one of the, the, the just, just to you both as well, though, 
you know, I love, you know, sort of the ringing of hands. And I, I think it, it must give you a little bit of a moment as well. I'm seeing you both smiling that the, 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 the bosses are just, they can't figure it out. Like, why are people quitting? And, and I think both of you say, well, the, the big, you know, why are people quitting? They would have quit 20 years. The, uh, when you uh, we were just talking about this in a previous segment, you know, people were working in nursing homes for terrible, for crap pay and getting crap thrown on them. The question wasn't why that, you know, why, why are they quitting now? It's like, why didn't they quit before? Right. Mm-hmm. That's right. And like what it means to quit. I mean, I, a lot of folks, particularly on the right and, and in a lot of mainstream uh, press like to equate it as if people quit and just went home to twiddle their thumbs. <laughs> as, and really what we're looking at is people who were working multiple jobs to make ends meet uh, quit to, to work just one. And now, God forbid, they have time for the PTA meeting or whatever it is. And and that's also really at the um, if you had to answer the so what about the book that we put together like at the end of the day, we want a better democracy, but we also want dignity, time with our families, dare we say it, joy to have a good time. Ah, like, come on you know, now, come on now, girl. You're, you're really, some of these you're human kinda, things that we sometimes forget to talk about. I know, I know. So, <laughs> <laughs> but I think like in this in this great awakening, uh, you know, and, and this historic moment of refusal that Sarita's talking about, what we're seeing is a reprioritization that many working people are making to focus on what's really important, their children, their families, and demanding that they have one job that sustains them and doing that instead of three. And I, I, you know, I, I really think that the key thing for movement leaders and many of us to, to try to pay attention to in this moment is not just to let it be a spontaneous act of individuals, but to actually figure out how we build organization out of it to build a powerful, powerful democracy and a powerful labor movement. To remind, we're talking with uh, Erica Smiley, Sarita Gupta. They've got a brand new book coming out, The Future. We need organizing for a better democracy in the 21st century. Ed Smith. Well, first of all, thank you, for Erica, uh, thank you Erica and Sarita, for coming out and, and talking about this very important issue. And before I ask my question or comment, uh, I'm going to ask the audience to kind of call in with questions and comments. You can call us at 202-588-0893. Uh, you know, I've been doing this for quite some time, and one of the problems in organizing, one of the problems in representing employees, in, even in individual matters, grievances and, and the such, is a lot of people have always complained about issues. I don't know, probably dating back to the beginning of work, whenever that was, I got a problem with my boss or I got a problem with this particular aspect in, in my job. So people have complained about that forever and ever and ever. And, and often they've complained about it with several other coworkers. I think some of the difference now we're maybe seeing, and maybe it's cyclical, but I think Black Lives Matter uh, has an impact on all this, that people are starting to go, you know what, I, I can stand up for myself. And if I don't stand up for myself, what's going to happen to me? Am I going to get kicked and beaten by a cop? Am I going to get thrown out of work uh, by my boss because I had too many patients to see and I couldn't care for all of them uh, with the expertise that I'm, I'm provided to do? I, I don't have the proper equipment. And, and finally, it's becoming, um, you know, these storms all happening around the same time where um, people are starting to fight. And I notice also in my industry, I work for healthcare. Um, it women of color are even even women of color who are getting older or a little uh, long in the tooth are starting to say you know what I'm tired of this I'm fighting back and so instead of taking uh, re uh, retirement they're either fighting back or some of them are resigning um, and I'm very interested to see 
I think, Erica, you hit, hit on it. How do we as leaders and organizations build that and build a platform for the diverse workers that, uh, you know, to have them share stories? And of course, their issues, what we always say in the union movement is your issue is my issue. That's not always true. And so how do we kind of put that all together in terms of organizing drives, campaigns, things like that? And does your book address that? And yeah, me- no, it's, it's huge. I'm so glad you raised it, Ed, because like it's, it, this is a moment where we have to get beyond kind of collegial partnership and actually try to understand our long-term self-interest in relationship to each other. And, uh, you know, one of the big things that we talk about is that we actually can't win collective bargaining power, let alone a healthier democracy, without centering the fights against white supremacy and gender discrimination. It's, it's that simple. It, we will just lose. If you want to win, that's actually something that has to be done. And your point about the Black Lives Matter movement, and frankly, you look at Me Too movements and many other popular movements that have, have uh, popped off in the last few years, they're, they're worker movements in many instances. You know, Some of the things that are certainly front and center, the most egregious acts of police or the egregious harassment of of people is is what gets the news but in many ways these are the demands that many working people have been making for a long time and it is it shouldn't be lost on us that the workers at the amazon plant down in bessemer who are about to get another boat were radicalized after the murder of george floyd it wasn't like they had been you know in the in the hopper for a while and you know some kind of traditional linear pathway to unionization they called us in. They called the labor movement in, similar to the way that workers in Memphis were galvanized by the civil rights struggle. And so one thing, and I'll say this particularly as a Southerner and as a Black Southerner, I think that our most militant base, as we think about the future of our movement, is actually in a place where there's the most repression. There's a reason that Southern states have long been uh, historically excluded or limited in how they could practice 20th century organizing collective bargaining power. And so, uh, and, and so it's important for us not to leave all that power on the table. Hey, I, I want to jump in real quick. You mentioned Memphis. I'm in the middle of reading a book right now. I can't seem to get back into it, but it's, it's about the, the, the Memphis uh, boycotts. And, and Is it uh, what, Michael K. Honey? Yes, thank yeah, you. Yeah, that's a great one. Yeah. And you know what what's fascinating to me is the total intra union fights, the total intra religious fights you had religious leaders white and black that were on both sides of the fence, oh you can't do this now, we can't really support the boycott now. Yet somehow, I mean it took a long time and it took a death of of one of our icons in the civil rights leadership, but somehow it worked. Even though uh, right. I don't know if you wanted to get into that at all, but because you had, yeah, PJ Choppa said, "I need another. I need a strike in Memphis. Like I need a hole in my head." That, <laughs> we actually quote that in the book. No, I mean this right. is the thing, though. And even if you go all the way back to like the Civil War and Reconstruction, like you have, you know, leaders in Philadelphia and the Northeast saying, "Let's just, you know, work this out. Let's work our plan or whatever." And then you have, you know, black workers in the South getting our asses kicked saying, no, we don't have time for a plan. We got to figure this out now, you know, and and the same tensions exist today. But I do think that what it's calling on us to do is to, to one, think differently about organization, that while we can in many places have a traditional path to building unions to ultimately uh, collectively bargain, that we need to be a little flexible with what organizations look like in many places. Because the point actually isn't just to join the union. The point is to be in democratic governing process over, over your economic conditions. 
period, whether it's with your employer, your boss's boss, the ultimate boss in the multinational bank or corporation or your corporate landlord or whatever. Like that's actually the point that we're trying to get to. And so one lesson in, in how we build organization out of this moment is to have some level of flexibility in how we think about what victory looks like or how we think about what the the end result looks like. And I would just chime in here to say that, you know, our book really is based on years of experience that Smiley and I have had at Jobs with Justice, which has been an organization that has had the great fortune of working at the edges of the labor movement, at the frontiers, the new frontiers, if you will, and at the intersections of race, class, and gender in profound ways. And so when Smiley talked earlier about the fact that we've brought in the voices of workers um, throughout our book, it's worth noting there's 10 10 workers that we profile and their stories of how they have led these new approaches to organizing and bargaining. And nine of them are women and majority of them, actually eight of them are women of color. And that is an important perspective. The labor movement as a whole, our movements need to embrace the experiences and the knowledge and the lessons of women of color who have often endured some of the most horrific working conditions and found pathways forward. And so our book really gets at how do we forge these new ways of organizing and bargaining? And we believe that a core element of that is that we have to fundamentally expand our definition of bargaining to be about creating pathways for working people to come together collectively to negotiate with any entity. This gets at the point Smiley was just making. Any entity that has power over their lives, be it employers, landlords, financiers, and more. And so a big component of how we do that is seeing workers as whole people and understanding that there are many forces that are impacting their lives um, and that we need to be able to address all of those. Um, if we can embrace the wholeness of people, then we can really address the, the broad set of issues they're experiencing and really recognize the many different ways that they interact with the economy. It's both in the workplace, but it's beyond the workplace as well. That's Sarita Gupta. She's director of the Ford Foundation's Future of Workers program. We're also talking with Erica Smiley, executive director of Jobs with Justice. They've got a new book, The Future We Need, Organizing for a Better Democracy in the 21st Century. We've just got a couple minutes left, but um, obviously we're going to have to have you back on. That's not a problem. I'm thinking about the Supreme Court. You know, it's going to be a nomination of a black woman, the first for the Supreme Court. We just went through last week with all the you know, with civil rights, uh, you know, I think oftentimes, and you guys know what I'm talking about here in D.C., it can be tough, right, inside the Beltway. It can be tough. I think what's really exhilarating about the work that you're doing and about the book that you've done, it seems really positive. And so maybe you can leave us on, on, a, on, on that note with, with your perspective uh, from, from, from the grassroots, uh, as, as it were. Um, Smiley, you want to go first? Yeah, Chris. Uh, let me just say, I'm so glad you asked this because like everyone wants me to be so excited about it. And I'm, I'm glad. <laughs> I'm glad. But I'm also like, you know, the Supreme Court has never given Thank any you. of us our salvation. <laughs> <laughs> so that, you know, wonderful. But, uh, you know, I, I think that one of the things that we really emphasize in the book and that we emphasize at Jobs for Justice is that 
you know, there are laws and we try to fight to make sure that our values are represented in those laws. But when the laws are bad, uh, then it takes a movement willing to break them in order to change them. And that's in essence what we're saying, not just in relationship to labor laws, but in really thinking about how to build a new democracy from the scaffolding or rubble, depending on where you're sitting, that we have, <laughs> that we're certainly- Maybe a little bit of both. Maybe a little bit of both, maybe a little bit of both. And and I think, um, I really appreciate, Ed, you bringing up Memphis. And the book, just so others know who are, who are interested, it's a great book. It's called Southern Labor and Black Civil Rights by Michael K. Honey. It's amazing. And um, I, I, one of the- Oh, uh, I was thinking the road to Jericho. Oh, the road to Jericho. I'm sorry. I was thinking about another one. So anyway, we'll come back. Both of them are fantastic. Uh, but I, I think one of the things that we popularize in the book is this idea of a new map. And too often, many organizers and movement leaders look at the country and split it up based on who voted for who in the last you know, presidential election or whatever. Yeah. And it misses entire uh, areas of the country, including the South, where I'm from, right, which just gets written off like you can't really do anything there. And people get really sad. And and. Um, you know, literally, I would go and talk. I remember I talked to some labor leaders and, and uh, the district leader of the UAW at one point and was like, you know, but how do we get rid of this right to work? And he just kind of looked down like <laughs> you know, defeated. And I was like, oh, this isn't good. Uh, but here's the cool thing about this new map that we pro- we propose, which is that if you look at if you look at the country through the lens of who has had access to 20th century democracy, political and economic, to 20th century mechanisms of putting their values into practice at the work site and in the elections, then it gives you a different perspective. Because of course, there are some places on the coast and in other ways that you can still win using those mechanisms. You can still win on your values. There are other places that recently lost it, like in the Midwest and the Great Lakes, and they're pissed about it. And you have to really talk to them differently when we're talking about building worker power because they feel very betrayed, like Sarita mentioned earlier. And then the last one, which is perhaps most exciting for the, the context of our book, is that there are these states that have long lost, if they ever had any access to 20th century mechanisms of collective bargaining, to voting power. And that's actually where people have a lot of imagination for something new and what's possible. That's the place where we're talking about building a new level of organization and thinking about collective bargaining in a much more expanded way. Uh, Sarita, you got about 20 seconds. I'm sorry. Okay. I'm sorry. I, I would, I would just add, it takes more than the laws. Like we need to change laws, but we also have to fundamentally shift people's, um, shift culture, how people really think about and feel about collective bargaining and the ability to govern over all aspects of their lives. We're a movement that's about dignity, respect, and agency. And our book really highlights the many different ways workers are, in fact, achieving that. Um, and that that's what it's all about. Thank you so much. Erica Smiley, Sarita Gupta, their new book, The Future We Need. This has been Your Rights at Work, engineered today by Mike Vassella, Sierra Shine. Thanks so much, everybody. See you next week. Not to be killed.